And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at episodes 26 and 27 of the original Ultraman. Uh, the episode The Monster Prince, featuring the debut, of course, of the very popular monster Gomera. Uh, we are going a different direction this time. We are moving from the Showa era to the Heisei era. We are moving from Ultra to Gamera. That's right, we are covering Gamera 2 Advent of Legion. Now, this film has a lot of different titles that it's gone by. That's the one I've always known it as. Please feel free to substitute your title of choice uh, as I discuss the film today. Uh, but before we get to Gamera, we do have uh, a fair amount of news and notes to go over here. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Now, I know I, I know we said we're not covering Ultraman, but here's some Ultraman news, okay? So Mill Creek has put up pre-orders for both Ultraman 80 and The Ultraman, which is the anime series, both set for release here in the United States on September 14th. Now, this is a bit of a change. These are DVD-only releases with no Blu-ray option and no digital copies. We've seen that with the no digital copies on the last few uh, modern Ultra releases, and that seems to be continuing. Rumors indicate, you know them rumor mills, they indicate that the Blu-ray... Uh, versions may become available from Subaraya for Mill Creek to use in the future, and that Mill Creek would release these again in Blu-ray format. But as of this recording, none of that is conf confirmed. All we have is the DVD release. Now, additionally, Mill Creek has announced that Ultraman Tiga, Dinah, and Gaia will be coming before the end of 2021, which is incredible. When you think about the fact that 80 and The Ultraman are due in September, that leaves three months to get those three Heisei shows out. Uh, now, the preview Heisei-era packaging, it's different from both the Showa and modern packaging, which is a really welcome touch for me because I really like the, the themed packaging that Mill Creek's been going with. Uh, but uh, no specific dates have been announced. Uh, Mill Creek is rapidly rolling out a lot of Ultra content. So all of us should be, uh, we should all have more Ultra than we know what to do with in the very near future. And of course, Never mind the fact that Ultraman Trigger has begun its simulcast on YouTube on Subaraya's official YouTube channel. But big note, you know, underline this, put a star next to it, whatever you need to do. You only have two weeks to watch each episode, so don't dawdle. As of this recording, episode one is about to roll off. So if you haven't seen episode one... Well, I think you may be out of luck, but go and check them out. Uh, I watched episode one with my kids. We really enjoyed it. It seems Trigger seems to be a bit more mysterious than Zet. Zet kind of struck me as a bit of a throwback, more straightforward series, whereas Trigger seems to remind me a, a bit of the little bit of Tiga that I've seen. I, I only saw the Fox Tiga, and I didn't see all of the Fox Tiga. 
but the um, it, it seems to be leaning a bit more in that direction as far as history and mystery and continuity. So it should be interesting to watch. I, for one, am, am, uh, have enjoyed that first episode, and I'm looking forward to watching the rest of Trigger. In independent news, SRS Cinema has announced that they've obtained North American releasing rights for both The Great Buddha Arrival and Nezara 1964. Now, per the press release, there will be both limited edition Blu-rays and VHS offerings, followed by wide-release DVDs. The Great Buddha Arrival, it's a remake of sorts of a lost film from the 1930s, thought possibly to be the very first Daikaiju film ever attempted. While Nezara 1964 is actually a film about the making of Dai's original attempt at a Daikaiju film, which was supposed to feature photographically enlarged rats, which ended up being abandoned in favor of making Gamera. If you've ever read that story of Nezera, essentially, Dai went out and got actual rats, like not like you know, movie rats, like actual sewer rats, and they were spreading disease and parasites throughout the studio, and they said, no, you can't do this. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm looking forward to both of these, and uh, personally, I find it heartening that SRS evidently has had so much success with these monster releases, that they're announcing up front that they will be going to wide-release DVD, which they have not always previously announced. On a lot of the previous releases, they've said, well, we're doing Blu-ray and VHS, and if that goes well enough, we'll do a wide DVD. I know that uh, Howl from Beyond the Fog went to wide-release DVD. Uh, God Raga vs. King Ogo went to wide-release DVD. So I, I will... I, I am... I guess it's a good sign that they're saying that they think they're going to have enough interest in these two to go um, announce straight up that they're going to do the the DVDs. I will. Ha I'm not. I've not decided if I'm going to go Blu-ray or DVD on these. I have a lot of SRS stuff on Blu-ray, um, but uh, and I do like supporting them, so I'll have to make that decision. In reading news, noted Daikaiju author John LeMay, friend of the show, friend of my brother's show as well, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, has a new issue of his movie Milestones Fanzine out, issue number five, and it covers the development of none other than Ibra Horror of the Deep, a.k.a. Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, which, per John, is actually his favorite Godzilla movie. Um, now, they, that movie, of course, has a, a great history as far as development, starting out as Operation Robinson Crusoe featuring King Kong, and not Godzilla. Uh, and that fanzine can be found on Amazon in both color and black and white options. Looks to be an easy recommend if you're a fan of that film, and I am. John always does great work, and if it's his favorite one, you know he's going to really dig into the details in the pictures there. Hat tip to my brother Jason, who actually posted this to my Facebook feed to make me aware of it. Uh, another item that my brother passed along to me, Mondo, Mondo Toys, is releasing a pair of exclusive Godzilla vs. Kong Mondoids for San Diego Comic-Con 2021. Mondoids are soft vinyl toys, which look more like bus. So we're getting a bus for both of our favorite top guys. They stand a little over three inches tall. They're somewhat super deformed, but from the pictures, they're still really, really nicely detailed. Very cool looking. These retail for $30 a piece and will be available to the general public in August, but be advised that each piece is limited to 1500 pieces so if you want them get on it i've seen these available on entertainment earth i don't know that i've seen them on big bad toy store but they are out there for pre-order uh see if, if, if you're interested in them please go hunt that down and uh, i mean they're they're neat the thing is there there are so many of these cool collectibles that you know and there it seems like every week there's there's something new that's cool it's like oh man that looks so nice you know so again hat tip to my brother jason for passing this one along and uh in other 
toy collectible news. Super 7! Everybody loves Super 7, right? Well, they are releasing a new version of the classic Shogun Warriors Godzilla toy, but with a twist. It's a three and three quarter inch tall reaction figure version. Reaction, of course, is their kind of retro uh, 70s style pocket heroes or Star Wars uh, three and three quarter inch. Uh, nominally five points of articulation line. Uh, it's part of their still sorta at Homic Con, <laughs> which is uh, going on. Uh, this figure is available at super7.com. And from the pictures, it appears to actually have six points of articulation uh, the, at the, the two arms at the shoulder, the head at the neck, the two legs at the hips, and then the tail. So it's got an extra piece of articulation. And it looks like it has a flicking piece for the flame breath. You know, the Shogun Warrior Godzilla had the, the tongue that could flip out to uh, mimic his flame breath. Uh, the fists, however, do not appear to fire off if that is a, a selling point for you one way or the other. The packaging is nice, too. It's a small-scale reproduction of the old Shogun Warriors box. Looks really sharp and will, would look really nice uh, on display. Uh, no pricing information. Uh, go to Super7.com and see uh, for, the, for the pricing. Uh, reactions do range a bit, so I don't even want to venture a guess, to be honest. Uh, hat tip once more to my brother Jason, who passed this one along. Um, the Shogun Warriors Godzilla predates me on this earth. So I've never had one. I am very, very tempted by this figure. It just looks so great. And you know that the Shogun Warriors Godzilla is such a classic uh, bit of Daikaiju ephemera, you know. So to see that in a smaller version with the box, too, with the reproduction of the box is is really nice. And I'm super tempted by that. So if that interests you, go check it out at Super7.com. And thanks again to Jay for passing that one along. Do you have any news or items that you think would be of interest here in Earth Destruction Directive? Go ahead and send them in. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook or Twitter. And uh, I will be sure to give you a shout out here on the show. So that's all the news I got. I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to get right into Gamera 2, Advent of Legion. You know, I'm the kaiju guy now, thanks to the Monster Island Film Fault, but before that I was the superhero guy. I wonder if there's a way I could combine those. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Travis from Kaiju Weekly? Yeah, I'm here because I need a co-host for a new Toku Heroes podcast. Oh? What's it called? Him. Shim. Complete. That's right, heroes. We are the Henshin Men, a tokusatsu superheroes appreciation podcast. Join us as we watch several episodes of a TV series from the wide world of Henshin heroes and discuss their merits and cultural significance. Starting with one of my all-time favorites, the original Kamen Rider from 1971. We'll give out awards for things like the best action scenes and crazy what the henshin moments. So hear us every Monday in your favorite podcatcher to get your weekly rider kicks. Gotta go, cause we only have a minute to henshin it. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera 2 Region Shurai, literally translated as Legion Invasion, was released in Japan on July 13th, 1996 from Dai Motion Picture Company, distributed actually by Toho. The film's English international title is Gamera 2 Advent of Legion, and it finally made its way to the U.S. on home media in 2003 in the form of a DVD from ADV Films under the name Gamera Attack of Legion, having never been released theatrically here in the West. 
Our writer is Kazunori Ito, best known for all three of the Heisei Gamera films, but was also uh, wrote for Ultraman the Ultimate Hero, a.k.a. Ultraman Powered. He was a writer on the anime version of Ghost in the Shell, the Dot Hack series, and the Patalabor series. Now, Ito originally worked with director Shusuke Kaneko, and we'll talk about Kaneko in a minute, when they both were staff writers on the anime Yurisei Yatsura. And I've, I've seen a little bit of, of, I've not actually seen any episodes of Urusei Yatsura, but I've heard of it. And I want to say that there's like a movie where there's like a whole scene where a bunch of characters are watching a Gojira in a movie theater. So I think there obviously might have been some Daikaiju love in there already. Our director of special effects is uh, Shinji Higuchi, who actually got his start as an assistant way back on Sayonara Jupiter and Return of Godzilla in 1984 over at Toho. He was also the director of special effects for the other two Heisei Gamera films and would later get a co-director credit for Shin Godzilla and we and would direct both of the live-action Attack on Titan films, which uh, I, I would like to cover those. I've never... I've read a tiny bit tiny, tiny bit of Attack on Titan, and I do enjoy it. I've never quite gotten fully into it, but would like to find out more about that. And our director, of course, is Shusuke Kaneko, uh, of course, the director of the other Heisei Gamera films and Godzilla Mothra King Ghidorah All Giant Monsters Attack. But Kaneko also has directed episodes of Ultra Q Dark Fantasy and Ultraman Max, meaning that Kaneko is the only person to accomplish the trifecta of directing a Godzilla film, a Gamera film, and at least one episode of an Ultraman series. Uh, very well-respected and well-regarded director. Uh, not a huge amount of output, but the stuff that he has made... Uh, is generally considered to be top-notch, so uh, always good to watch a, a Kaneko film. Now, our synopsis, uh, I, I started with the basis of the Wikizilla uh, synopsis, but it's essentially is my own synopsis. So here is our story, and it goes a little something like this. In 1996, as part of a massive meteor shower event, a large meteor impacts near Lake Shikatsu in Hokkaido, creating a strange glow in the sky. The JSDF's chemical school is deployed to investigate, led by Colonel Yusuke Watarase and First Lieutenant Hanatani. Also investigating is Midori Honami, curator from the Sapporo Science Center. Near the lake, electronics begin to malfunction, and Honami's SUV breaks down. Even stranger is that there is no sign of the meteor, only the crash site, and markings that suggest that the meteor was slowing down before impact. In the following days, strange occurrences begin happening nearby in nearby Sapporo. Night watchmen at a brewery encounter what appears to be a human-sized insect, and all of the bottles are disintegrated, leaving only silicon powder. Similarly, Obitsu, an engineer at NTT's Hokkaido Operations Center, discovers that many fiber-optic cables have mysteriously disappeared. The following week, a subway train in Sapporo was attacked by the same creature as seen in the brewery, in a mysterious plant-like pod emerges from the building in the center of the city. Watarase's team takes control of the area, and Honami determines that the smaller creatures attacked the passengers who had silicon-based devices on their person. She theorizes that this so-called colony breaks down the silicon and feeds it to the pod, which in turn creates massive amounts of oxygen in its vicinity, making the environment toxic to humans. Honami's analysis shows that the pod is preparing to seed, using the massed oxygen as a fuel source, and that the resulting explosion would wipe out a radius miles wide. Just as the JSDF prepares to destroy the pod, Gamera appears from the coast. Gamera inhales the dense oxygen and then blasts the pod with his plasma fireball, incinerating it. 
Gamera's victory is short-lived, however, as thousands of smaller creatures swarm out of the subway tunnels and attack Gamera. This leads Hanatani to quote a passage from the Bible, and he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. The Legion soldiers injure Gamera, but he is able to escape, flinging them off in UFO mode as he retreats. Once Gamera is gone, a giant creature erupts from underground and takes flight. The JSDF scramble jets to attack, blasting the giant with missiles, but only a piece of wing is recovered. In the wake of the battle, Honami, Watarase, and Obitsu theorize on the ecology of the Legion, determining that they use electromagnetic waves to communicate, which is why they cause interference with radios and other signals, as well as why they are drawn to densely populated areas. They also conclude that the Legion will move to another city and create another pod, as this is how they spread themselves across the cosmos. The prediction quickly comes true with a second pod appearing in Sendai, which has a much warmer climate than Sapporo, meaning the pod is blooming at a faster rate. The city is evacuated, including Honami, as she is a civilian. While being marshaled onto a helipad, Honami sees Gamera streaking towards Sendai, but he is attacked by the massive Legion Mother, which survived the JSDF attack. Honami realizes that another one of the evacuees is Asagi Kusanagi, the teen girl who was able to communicate with Gamera during the battles with Gauss the previous year. While the helicopters are able to launch, Gamera is badly wounded by Legion Mother, who uses a powerful microwave beam to inflict grievous wounds on Gamera, trying to hold him off long enough for the pod to fire off its seed. With Gamera collapsed, Mother Legion retreats, but the wounded Gamera forces himself to limp towards the pod. Gamera is able to knock the pot over, but is unable to destroy it before it explodes, reducing the city of Sendai to a smoking crater and seemingly killing Gamera in the process. The JSDF prepares for an invasion of Tokyo by the Legion. Asagi refuses to believe that Gamera is dead and travels with Honami to the ruins of Sendai, where Gamera sits lifeless. Dozens of children and other young people have gathered by his body, keeping vigil and desperately hoping for his return. Meanwhile, Mother Legion appears outside of Tokyo, and the JSDF are unable to hold their defensive line, being forced to fall back. Back in Sendai, the prayers and hopes of the faithful begin to coalesce into energy, taking the shape of Asagi's talisman and revitalizing the Guardian of the Universe. Asagi's talisman shatters in her hand as Gamera is revived, and jets off to once more defend the Earth. At the second defensive line, Hanatani pleads with the JSDF commander to aid Gamera, who battles fiercely with Mother Legion, but is unable to penetrate her defenses. Relenting, the commander orders the JSDF to support Gamera, and is able to wound her enough for Gamera's plasma fireballs to score hits. Meanwhile, Obitsu is working on a plan to defeat the Legion's soldiers, using a local NTT substation to transmit a signal, which attracts a swarm. With the Legion soldiers massing on the power substation outside the broadcast station, the JSDF sends an attack helicopters with Blast the Legion wiping them out. The battle between Gamera and Mother Legion is brutal, with each combatant scoring terrible strikes on the other. Gamera tears off Mother Legion's horn, disabling her microwave beam, but Mother responds by attacking with razor-sharp blades of red energy, piercing Gamera like needles. Mother Legion continues marching onwards, breaking through the final line of defense outside of Tokyo. Desperate. Gamera summons a massive amount of energy from the Earth itself, glowing brightly as he does. The front shell covering Gamera's chest opens wide, and a massive beam of plasma erupts from him, utterly eradicating Mother Legion and blasting her to dust. With the sun rising, Gamera flies off, with the JSDF saluting their unlikely ally in a sign of respect. A few days later, 
As Honami and Obitsu are walking through Sapporo, where repairs are being made to the damage caused by Legion, Honami muses that Gamera may not be defending only humanity, but all of life on the Earth. This leads Obitsu to ponder what would happen if humanity became a threat to the rest of life on Earth, leading Honami to, to conclude that she would not want to be Gamera's enemy. Okay, there you have it, Gamera 2 Advent of Legion. This is a... Whoa, this movie is a tour de force. I'm not going to bury the lead on it. So uh, I really, really enjoy this movie, have since the first time I saw it. So let's go ahead and get right into the notes. And the main takeaway I have for Gamera 2 is that this film is a throwback, but it's executed with modern sensibilities, modern for 1996. While the previous film, Guardian of the Universe, and the follow-up to this one, Revenge of Eris, are involved with their own mythology and world building, Advent of Legion sounds like a Showa film. Gamera must battle space aliens who will destroy the Earth. But instead of humanoid invaders in a UFO with space monsters like we might have gotten in a Showa film, here the story plays out more like a straight science fiction story, with the various forms of Legion behaving like an actual invasive species. So while it's a thoroughly modern film, again for 1996, the final product seems thematically and spiritually much more in line with the original Gamera movies than either of the other two Heisei installments which bookend it. The science and story logic also gets something of an upgrade over what we might have gotten in a Showa film. While the science is still of the, you know, science fiction variety, it makes sense as part of the story and is believable. Every time there's a question as to why the Legion are behaving a certain way, Hanami has a real-world example which explains it. It also serves to tie the different set pieces together. The Legion's actions, from eating the silicon, to creating the pod, to enriching the oxygen, to the pod's explosion, are all tied together logically. There are no leaps of faith in this film when it comes to why the Legion do what they do. In fact, the only real such leap of faith literally involves those who have faith in Gamera. That faith is presented as something supernatural, outside of the scientific order, which dictates the behavior of the Legion. The only aspect which I could possibly take issue with is the Mother Legion, but even then, she clearly is a reaction to the presence of Gamera more than part of their normal activity, a defense mechanism. She's there because they need to defend against Gamera and the soldiers can't do it. Specific aspects of the film also follow this throwback approach. From a structural standpoint, Legion is the star of the film, the driver of the story, with Gamera ultimately playing more of a reactionary role. To me, this calls back directly to some of the Showa films, specifically Gamera vs. Barragan. We also see this with Gauss, Jiger, and Zegra, but in this case, I always lean back to Barragan, probably because that's my favorite one of the original movies. The actions of both Barragan and Legion are what push the narrative and what bring Gamera into the story in the first place. Similarly, there's a long stretch of both films where Gamera is defeated and the SDF must deal with the enemy monster. Again, we see this pop up several times in the Showa era, making it a welcome addition to me here in the Heisei film. Additionally, both this film and Gamera vs. Barragan display a distrust of Gamera by at least some of the human characters. Now, in the case of the earlier film, it's due to Gamera's previous rampage, while here, it's more of a case of what I would call self-determination. The idea is, why should we rely on a monster to fight our battles for us? This is a theme which fits in nicely with the transition in attitudes in Japan in the 1990s, coming out of the economic miracle and the major increase in international influence of the nation in the previous decade. Now, for the decades following World War II, nationalism was seen as a very dangerous thought in Japan relative to globalism and cooperation. But by this point, with World War II 50 years in the past, Concepts of self-determination started to gain traction, at least in popular culture. 
Now, this theme is still kicking around in Daikaiju, as late as Shin Godzilla in 2016, or even a little bit in Ultraman Z in 2020. We talked about this previously when we talked about Godzilla vs. Biolanti, made only seven years before this movie. Another throwback theme is the unwavering faith of the children in Gamera. I legitimately mark out for the scene of the children gathering by Gamera when he is thought to be dead after the explosion in Sendai. The connection between children and Gamera is one of the strongest and most unique aspects of the character, and even after utilizing it in Guardian of the Universe with Asagi, here its portrayal is to me more powerful. The innocent faith of the children being the force which allows Gamera the strength to come back to save the entire Earth may be a little, you know, on the nose for the one-time friend to all children, but that is one of the traits which differentiates Gamera from Godzilla. As I said, it's something of a supernatural aspect to the character and the film, and I'm down with that. Of course, this scene would also play a huge role in the next film, with the talisman shattering in Asagi's hand, but we will save that for another episode. Now, this old-school approach, unfortunately, also leads to the film's one real weakness, which is the characters. While Guardian of the Universe and Revenge of Eras both were populated with well-rounded and defined characters, this time out we seem to be more in the mode of a 1960s or 70s film, where characters are defined more by what they do rather than who they are. We have Watarase, the military officer, Honami, the scientist, Obitsu, the techie. Even Asagi, returning from the first film, is not given much to do other than to act as a role as the faithful priestess, for lack of a better term, for Gamera. In fact, one of the most memorable characters in the film is the returning character Osako, having retired from the police after the Gauss incident, now working as the night watchman at the brewery, only to be mixed up in more monster business. And Osako really only has an extended cameo, appearing in two back-to-back -back scenes, but not playing much of a role in the overall story. Now, everyone behaves essentially as one expects them to behave, without deviating too much from their roles, which is okay in and of itself, as the story in this film is definitely driven by the Legion narrative more than the human characters. Personally, this does not really bother me or detract from the overall viewing experience, but that said, I can very much see how this can be negatively compared to the other two films, as they were somewhat revolutionary in this respect, especially at this time, and coming off of the Heisei Godzilla series, which, you know, while popular, was not necessarily as character-driven as Guardian of the Universe. Ultimately, it comes down to personal preference, and even with fans who might place Advent of Legion 3 out of 3 in this series, generally still regarded with high praise, just, you know, not as high as the other two, and that's reasonable enough as far as I'm concerned. From a technical standpoint, Advent of Legion builds on everything presented in Guardian of the Universe and builds upon it. Gamera's look here is not much different from Guardian of the Universe, but just evolved enough to be noticeable. He looks a little meaner, a little meaner, trends which would continue into the next film as well. The well-articulated head and neck is again used to really good effect, and Gamera emotes very strongly in this film. His fireballs are animated in a similar fashion, as is his UFO mode, which looks really impressive in this film, and in fact in the Heisei films in general. I love how dynamic the UFO mode is, always have. Gamera also gets the crap beat out of him in this movie, another trend which would continue, and again, throws back to the Showa period. Um, this leads to a very striking moment uh, in the first half of the film, when he retreats from the first encounter with the Legion in his UFO form, splattering his green blood all over the area. Yikes. The performance by Akira Ohashi shines through in these scenes of peril, the most memorable of which is the slow, doomed march toward the pod in Sendai, a wonderful piece of physical acting. 
Uh, the biggest change to Gamma is his new attack, firing a beam of pure energy from his chest after opening up his shell. Uh, this qualifies as a, you know, oh my damn moment as far as I'm concerned. The final escalation of violence when all other efforts have been unable to stop Legion. It's a very visually impressive final attack and a great addition to the Gamera mythos. Legion is the most ambitious monster in the Gamera series to this point, and one could make the argument that they are the most ambitious in the entire series, rivaled only really by Eris from the next film. The multiple forms are all unique, but clearly related. Each one is executed so well that none of them really stand out as a weak point. The swarming soldiers are incredibly creepy and downright scary at points, such as in the initial subway tunnel encounter. That scene especially stands out in my mind because of the human gore, more similar to a horror film than Daikaiju. It's not much from the gore, but it really sells the vicious nature of these invaders. The full-size props interact well with the actors on the screen. Uh, I compare this positively to the small Destoroyas from the previous year's Godzilla vs. Destoroya, both on a creative and execution standpoint. The Legion soldiers just look more convincing and more frightening to me than the small Destoroyas. Now, it is amusing that certain beats with the soldiers seem lifted from the Toho film, including the violent battle with the SVF and the swarming over the hero monster, but I will chalk that up to concurrent evolu evolution and leave it at that. Of course, one can then look to the flying Meganura swarm from Godzilla x Megaguirus and see the precursor here, if one is so inclined. The pod, or flower form, it's oddly beautiful and striking in its own way. The imagery of the pod perched atop a department store embodies the concept uh, that we've talked about many times here of an Asian fantasy film uh, wishing to display strong visual images. But in this case, it's also a realistic effect. The, the mixing of the alien and the terrestrial looks very effective. The alien and the familiar being smashed together creates a few memorable shots for a monster which, by its nature, can't move. And of course, you know, when you get down to it, the pot is the most dangerous member of the Legion, front and center in the most memorable scene in the film, and seemingly killing our hero. Now, neither of the other forms, as much damage as they do, come, clo come as close as the pod does to putting Gamera down for good, and that's nothing to sneeze at. The Legion mother, at first glance, looks like it must be entirely some sort of marionette based on the way the legs work, in the same vein as Kamakuras or Kuomanga. And while there is some marionette work, the actual execution is much more involved, as an in that sounds, considering the complexity of a marionette monster. With two suit actors, Mizuho Yoshida and Toshinori Sasaki, each playing part of the monster, Mother has a level of menace on par with the soldiers, just scaled up to be commiserate with her foe. For all intents and purposes, she looks more like something one would expect to see in an anime than a tokusatsu, with a body structure that does not seem plausible in three dimensions. Even more so than Iris, Mother is, to me, the epitome of the technical achievement of the Heisei Gamera films. A wholly unique, non-humanoid monster, executed in a previously untried method, ends up on the screen as an incredible and menacing enemy. Add to that her intense design and narrative brutality. I mean, in this movie, it's kill or be killed, after all. Can you really reason or argue with a bug? I mean, at the end of the day, Mother is a winning monster, plain and simple. And her brutality is on clear display, from that main beam weapon fired from her snout to the red, energy whip-like attack we see in the finale. This attack especially makes me wince, foreshadowing the tentacles of Iris a good bit. Again, one could argue that her presence is simply to have a giant monster for Gamera to fight, but when that monster is so realized, does that really matter all that much? I'm sure I'm pissing off some purists here with that take. When am I ever worried about that, though, right? Now, the SDF plays a fairly large role in this film, utilizing a mix of miniatures and live footage. 
The live footage does not appear to be stock footage, instead looking more like specific shots made for this film, which helps it a lot. The miniatures look nice in line with the rest of the film's effects. The miniature model work on the various environments also really well done, similar to the previous film, but by my take, a little more complex and varied. Now, from an effects standpoint, I don't think most fans can find fault with this film. Everything has a clear level of quality on display from top to bottom. There's a great shot, for instance, in the finale, where we track with the missiles as they streak through the air towards Legion. A mix of practical and CG effects, which works really, really well, especially given the time frame in which it was produced. Now, all told, Gamera 2 Advent of Legion, it's a superior Daikaiju film from a superior Daikaiju series. Often overshadowed by its predecessor and successor, Advent of Legion is an exciting, intelligent, well-written and paced science fiction film in the tradition of the best efforts in the genre from the Showa era. But instead of resting on those laurels, the film builds them up and modernizes them to create a film which has the soul of a Showa alien invasion epic, but the physical form of a big-budget Heisei showcase. Kaneko here has created what I take to be as a love letter to the alien invasion films from a generation previous, looking backwards to the earlier days of the genre and using those building blocks to make something fresh and new. The Legion run the gamut from horrific to monstrous, a wonderful new foe for our hero, and Gamera himself stands tall, cementing his status as being worthy and as heroic as Godzilla, proving that guarding the universe was not a fluke. While not quite as deep from a human story standpoint as its two series mates, Advent of Legion stands tall as an example of the daikaiju genre executed with intelligence, class, and quality, telling a legitimate sci-fi story right alongside its monster mythology, pulling both of them off successfully. Individual viewers will decide which Heisei Gamera film they like the best, but from the first time I saw it 15 years ago till now, for my money, Advent of Legion remains one of the top Japanese monster movies ever produced. Now, if you would like to own Gamera 2, you still have a couple of options. The Mill Creek Heisei Trilogy Blu-ray set is still available on Amazon, as is the Arrow Video Trilogy Steelbook Special Edition. Now, sadly, the Arrow Complete Gamera box is out of stock right now, but if you can find it, that is, of course, the best bet for Gamera fans. Similarly, the Arrow Heisei Era box set is also showing us out of stock on Amazon but available from other sellers if you want to go that route. Now, of course, if you just want to watch the film or not worried about owning a disc, Advent of Legion is available to watch on Prime Video, along with the other installments of the trilogy. So I throw it now to you, the listener. What do you think? Do you think Advent of Legion is the top of the Heisei uh, Gamers, or do you place it three out of three? Write in and let me know. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time for a little bit of 
Listener feedback, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Twitter or Facebook, and now you can also find us on YouTube. Just listen to the outro to the show, and you'll uh, find out all the ways you can get in touch with us. Let's get right into it. Our first email is entitled, The Thrilla with Godzilla, and it is from friend of the show, Jack Bond, and Jack writes... Uh, hey guys, and I, he says hey guys because he has written this to both myself and my brother Jason. Hey guys, first, thanks for loading up your van with optimism and hope, and Crosby, and taking the road to Godzilla vs. Kong. You inspired me to pull down my DVDs and review the series so far, something I haven't really done since Lord of the Rings, with the extended edition DVDs of the previous movie came out just before the theatrical release of the next one. Jason, I think it was at the end of the road shows brought up some fan predictions for GVK. I was listening along, mentally agreeing with him about not trying to anticipate the story, when I had a vision of the end of the movie. Godzilla sunk in the ocean, not resurfacing, and as Kong walks into the sunset, the screen fades to black. Just before the cast list, the screen fills with King Kong. I was about to write in and claim this prediction when I noticed, by the date that the movie had been out for a couple of days, now, I can really only tell you about it if it didn't happen, so I had to wait until I could see it last night. I wasn't really in love with the idea. You can tell it came from the movie John Carter, where we got the John Carter of Mars at the very end. Sometimes it seems like movie makers have a strange take on the idea that a moment has to be earned, and they think the audience has to sit through an origin prequel to, quote, earn a cool Han Solo or a competent Captain Kirk, but I'm starting to rant. Um, I, yeah, I like that. I mean, that, that would have been fine. I, I do agree with you, though. It is, you know, I, the John Carter of Mars thing was such a ridiculous thing that they had to drop Mars because it was another Mar movie with Mars in the title that would did terrible business, you know, and that hurt that movie so much. But I would have liked that if after, you know, uh, fighting with Godzilla and then, you know, helping beat, uh, you know, Mechagodzilla and seeing up the Mechagodzilla, we could have started calling him King Kong. Um, that would have been cool, but I think, again, it gets down to a rights thing, doesn't it? Like, they're not allowed to call him King Kong or something like that, but I would have been down with that ending, uh, Jack, even if you weren't, you know, thrilled with it, I still think it would have been cool. Uh, Jack continues, I don't know if there's a deeper meaning or just the constraints of filmmaking, but the only person who can understand Kong has to communicate to the world through an intermediary herself. At least for this film, they were able to keep a natural-sounding flow in the conversation, from Dr. Lind to Andrews to Gia to Kong and back again. I, I agree with that. That was that was really well handled, and that is a really great point. You know, Gia also has to interpret because normal. I mean, not only did she learn ASL, but she also originally didn't speak English, right? So she had to kind of interpret two levels of language, and thus she's able. You know, she's a character that can interpret Kong. The final battle was great. Good thing Hong Kong has such a robust electrical grid. There's a shot so nice they did it twice, with Godzilla's radiation breath shooting across the street, you could say through one block and into the next, and shining on all the glass and chrome. Then there was Godzilla searching the battlefield for Kong, who was hanging off the side of a tall building. The Mechagodzilla! I thought it looked awkward, maybe because of the boxy arms, but I like that they changed it up with an endoskeleton sort of look. Each spine was held in by a pair of brackets. Why they had to individually ratchet forward a notch before it fired, I don't know, but I liked it. I'm going to jump in here, Jack. I'm assuming that is because they couldn't have the spines glow. 
much like we have the the shot in Godzilla 2014 when Godzilla first fires his atomic breath of where we pan up his tail and back with each of the spines lighting up before he discharges it. Uh, I'm guessing that is why they all ratchet there as an indication that the beam is charging up. Uh, but, but, but Jack continues, I lost track. Is the Ghidorah skull still safe down in Deep 13? If so, it's back to the old drawing board, which I'll consider a happy ending for Mechagodzilla. If they spun it off into its own movie, Mechagodzilla 2 would be the perfect title and confuse the hell out of everybody. Anytime you use the term Mechagodzilla 2, it confuses people. And uh, I'm, I'm, I still don't understand why Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 is the official name for Godzilla 93 I, in, in the U.S. I still have yet to figure that one out. Um, yeah, so... The, you know, again, it's not clear, but in the novelization, there are two skulls. There's one in Deep 13, as you say, and then there's one in the MG, and you needed both of them. So I'm guessing that, at least as the way we leave it, unless the skull was destroyed when the MG erupts out of the, uh, uh, erupts out of that base then it would still be there, so I suppose that could be used for a sequel. I guess we'll have to see. I mean, uh, you know, at this point, we still don't have any sequels on the board, but it'll be interesting to see where we go from that. Uh, Jack finishes with, well, until we get the Son of Kong and the Son of Godzilla fighting in GVK the next generation, keep them stomping, signed Jack. I would totally watch that. You know, not for nothing, but I would watch that. Jack, thank you very much for writing in. Good points as always. Always appreciate getting emails from you. And uh, glad you enjoyed the road to Godzilla vs. Kong and hope you're uh, still staying with us here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our next email comes from Jonathan Kreitz and is entitled simply Godzilla vs. Kong. And uh, Jonathan writes, Hey Luke, just wanted to write in and say I have really enjoyed the MonsterVerse recap episodes leading up to Godzilla vs. Kong. My kids are old enough now that in anticipation of the new film, we went back and watched Godzilla 2014. Kong Skull Island with a few fast-forwards through the most gruesome parts, agreed with that, and King of the Monsters. They were universally loved by the kids, and I enjoyed listening to y'all's episodes after we watched the movies. Quick question, is GVK the last of the MonsterVerse films? And then he signs off with, keep up the good work. Jonathan. So, first off, Jonathan, thank you very much for writing in. Um, I have not watched them all with my kids yet. I, we are just at the age that I think we can start doing that. My youngest one might be a little young for some of those scarier parts in Skull Island especially, but I will we'll be there soon enough. Um, as I was saying on Jack's email, right now GVK is the last of the MonsterVerse films. There is talk of doing more, you know, kind of rumors and innuendo of doing more stuff with, with Kong, especially at Hollow Earth. Um, but right now, nothing has been officially announced. So as of right now, the MonsterVerse ends with the four films and however many tie-in comics and what have you. There is also rumors, of course, of like a Netflix animated series, but again, nothing has really been officially announced yet or, you know, even unofficially announced. It's just with rumors and innuendo, like I said. So for right now, it looks like it might be the end, which, you know, I mean, if you got to go out, this is a way to go out. It certainly was what the entire... Um, uh, franchise was building to, um, you know, much in the same way that, you know, the first year or the first year, the first phase of Marvel was building to Avengers. And if they had ended at Avengers, would, would it, it would have been a way, a way to end it. Right. I mean, I don't know that everyone would have been happy, but it would have been a way to end it. Um, so that might be what we get here. We'll just have to wait and see. Unfortunately, again, thank you, Jonathan, for writing in glad you are enjoying the show. And our last email today comes from my good friend, Professor Allen. And Alan writes in, Earth Destruction Directive 95, Ultraman 2-parter. And Alan writes, Luke, 
I just watched The Monster Prince, parts one and two, in prep for your next Ultraman episode of Earth Destruction Directive. And lo and behold, just a few days later, that episode comes out. I thought these ones were a blast. Good effects, a good monster, a dramatic situation, and a kid to the rescue. Like you, I liked that the kids were playing with Ultraman and monster masks. One kid even using a faux beta capsule. One of the kids even has Ultraman toys. That was a treat to see. And perhaps good marketing, too. Yeah, that is something. It's like, you know, that that is that that is identification with the audience. It's like, hey, you see, he's just like you. He's got a room full of Ultraman toys, too. Oh, and look, he's got a few you don't have. Maybe the next time you go to the department store, you can bug your mom to get you one of these. Huh? Uh, Alan continues, Love the dozens of tanks and other weapons that fire in the second episode. Yes, they look like toys today, but 50 years ago, on a fuzzy UHF signal, I bet they looked great. There are other security forces and military personnel in the episode, but they almost always just stand around. But the Science Patrol, they are running, jumping, active. Yeah, that's that's good point, Alan. The Science Patrol, they really are the heroes. They, they get to do all the heroic stuff in these episodes, generally. And in case I forgot to mention this, Ultraman has to fight a monster's disembodied tail. I am positive I did not see this one growing up, because there is no way I could have forgotten that scene. Uh, yeah, that is that is one of the strangest things I've ever seen in any Daikaiju um, show or series, and that's really saying something when you really get down to it. Uh, Alan continues, and the hero is, is the kid, who even talks his way into Science Patrol HQ. What a great bit for a kid's show. Also, since you asked, I love the music you played at the opening of the episode. Keep up the good work and keep them stomping. Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness to Light Podcast. Alan, thank you very much for writing in. Always can count on you uh, to have some uh, some good thoughts when we do Ultraman. I know Ultraman is uh, something you grew up with uh, and uh, have a lot of memories for, so I'm glad you appreciated that one. And I like that one. The, the Monster Prince is a really good two-parter, and, you know, I, I kind of gushed over it last time out, so I won't do it again, but it's, I'm glad that other people also enjoyed that one. So social media likes, retweets, shares, thumbs up, all that good stuff for the last episode came from my brother, Jason Giaconetti, John Vanover, Derek William Crabb, Derek WC, Kyle Gilstrap, Chuck Rodriguez, movies, 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 Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Gene Hendricks, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine, Tim Elliott, Brian Sever, Robert Ward, Trekker Talk Podcast, The Warlord Worlds Podcast, Two True Freaks, History of Comics on Film, Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, The Weird Warriors Podcast, Max Reads Comics, The Aforementioned Professor Allen, and the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Anthony Perconti and Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D. Thank you very much for all that social media love. It really helps get word of the show out there, and all of it is definitely appreciated. Uh, so, we have reached the end of another episode of Earth Destruction Directive, and as always, we must look forever forward, not backward. So what is coming next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we are jumping back into the Godzilla series, and we're going all the way back to the Showa Godzilla series, and the next film in line there is the, some might say infamous, Godzilla vs. Megalon. Been definitely looking forward to covering this, especially after uh, what I thought was a wonderful episode covering Godzilla vs. Gigan with uh, Nate Marchand. So we're going to be taking a look at the next film in the line. Uh, and, and Godzilla vs. Megalon is a film that I have watched many, many, many times since I was a kid, owing to being uh, actually the first Godzilla film I had on a commercial tape. Uh, as we all know, Godzilla vs. Megalon was thought to be in the public domain for a long time. 
a lot of cheap VHS releases, so I had one of those as a kid, and uh, watched this movie quite a bit, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to covering that. Hope everyone will come back and, uh, and join us on that episode next time. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone, as always, for downloading and listening. You know, the lifeblood of any podcast is the listeners, and you are all definitely appreciated. Also, like to let everyone know that, of course, Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are interested in Japanese giant monsters, part of that scene, part of that culture in any way, you are welcome to be a part of this show, and uh, all are welcome here, as always always at Earth Destruction Directive. Okay, like I said, thank you very much for downloading and listening. Hope everyone enjoyed this episode, taking a look at Damera 2 Advent of Legion. Hope everyone comes back next time and joins us for Godzilla vs. Megalon. You know, another hero fighting a bug, but slightly different, I might say, in the execution. And uh, until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. Produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2truefreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name E-D-D. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.